I asked Linda if she would read selected verses because there's um, a lot of things that Paul just continues to build on in those verses that are sort of along the same track that will lead us today um, to that place of our only hope is the grace of God through His Son, Jesus, on our behalf. These um, chapters, I don't know about for you, but uh, for me, once again, this obviously is not the first time I've gone through them, but uh, every time I do, they weigh on me um, in such a uniquely new way of weight. Uh, it's the only way I can really describe it, that I get, I get so undone by them that for the weeks and months that I go through them and study them, I, I get more and more undone and um, more and more distracted uh, in things that, I, that are outside of the purview of these words. Um, and so it, it just consumes me with this insatiable weight that can only be lifted by Christ. And, um, and, that, and yet that's the purpose of these first three chapters of Romans. It's the very purpose, as we said in chapter 1, when we started in verse 18, that, that these next several weeks would drive us away from our own hypocrisies. It would drive us away from our own moralisms and drive us to the cross of Christ. And, that, and that's the point that Paul is making. And that in making the making of this point, he would teach us that only Scripture can be our final authority on what God says and what God would have of us. And that the way that Scripture unveils and reveals God's gospel and His truth to us, it interprets its own self by doing that. And in its interpretation, in its uh, illumination, it shows us that it is only by faith alone that we can come to this grace alone in God, that it has nothing to do with our, our own works, it has nothing to do with our own goodness but solely upon the goodness of God and the mercy of God that we come to the throne of God. And that it is by His sovereign will that He touches the hearts of any of us who are doomed and destined and conceived, as the Psalms would tell us, for hell and in hell. From Psalm 51, David says, It was in sin that my mother and Father conceived me, so that we know from conception we have a, a boundedness. We, have an, we are obligated for hell. We are born spiritually still. We are dead. And not only so, but we are also dying beings. We not only are dead spiritually, but we continue deeper and deeper and deeper into that spiritual death unless... God intervenes on our behalf and touches us with His grace. And that truly is the purpose of chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And if we were to begin to surmise them, that would be that there is bad news for mankind. 
There's bad news for the pagan. None of, none of his atheistic or humanistic efforts are going to save him. There's no possible way that he can be justified before the Lord because he has rebelled against the Lord from the very beginning, knowing that God is God, mankind, humankind, has suppressed this truth. Not only in the suppression of this truth, mankind or humankind has developed and engineered ways to be completely distracted from the truth of there even being a God, to say that there are created things that are more real than the one who created them. And so there would be a reliance on created things more so than the Creator of all things. And in so, all of our relationships, all of our paradigms, including those of our relationships, would become depraved. And our own thinking, God says, is turned over to depravity. Some of you think that maybe, maybe depravity means that I'm Adolf Hitler, and I know that I'm no Adolf Hitler, that depravity means I could be the worst possible human being that I could be. That's not what depravity means. Depravity means that there's no hope for you to be the best human being that you can possibly be. That you do not have the ability to stand on your own before the holiness of God and compare your holiness with His holiness. That there's something skewed within us. Something that has caused us to have an inability to be able to even choose God until God chooses us. And so it's also bad news for the moralist that none of us who think that we could stand before the throne of God in our own morality could compare to that which is moral about God. We learn that in chapter 2. No matter how good we think we are compared to the next person, the comparison that we make is not about the next person, but the comparison that we must make is with the comparison of the holy, holy, holy God and His holiness. And it's an insult to the cross of Christ for us to even think that somehow our moral attributes could measure to those of God's moral character. And so it's bad news for humankind, bad news for those of us who think we're moral. And here he will move on into speaking of the Jews, but the religionist. Those of us who think our religion will somehow justify us before the throne of God. We left off last week in chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 2. And so we'll pick up there today as we continue in these lessons of hypocrisy, humility, in God's grace. And we'll look at the fallacies of a non-universal condition. Paul says this in verse 12. He says, Those who have sinned without the law, they will also perish without the law. But then he moves down here, and this is where I want to focus on this section of verses. He says in verse 15, They show, talking about the Gentiles or the, or the moralists, they show the work of the law that is written in their heart, that is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is Paul saying here? 
Well, Paul is saying that even the non-Jew, even the Gentile, though they didn't have the written law, though they weren't blessed by being in the covenant community, mankind still has the law of God written on his heart. And it comes natural to us because we're made in the image of God that we know what God requires in our own heart. We can look back even into Genesis and see this with Cain and Abel. Right? Before God ever wrote on stone that thou shalt not murder, we knew that the murder of Abel was wrong. And Cain knew that murdering his brother was wrong. And Adam and Eve knew that this was wrong. And certainly we can imagine the grief that Adam and Eve had as they buried their own son, the first creature to die in all of creation, knowing that they are responsible for his death. That it was their sin that brought death into the world. And it was the sin by the hands of their own son against their son. And they knew it was wrong. How could they know this if thou shalt not murder had not been written yet? Why would Paul say that death reigned from the time of the garden up until the time the law was given, except for man knows in his heart the law of God? And so that those who would think there's some innocent person out in the jungle somewhere, it does not exist. They do not exist. They know from the beginning of birth that there's something within us that's morally right and morally wrong. And those morals come not from our society, not from our culture, but from heaven itself and its throne. And if you were to ever find someone innocent out in the jungle, we would say, leave them alone. There is no need for you to share the gospel with them if they are innocent. It's a fallacy to think that this is a non-universal condition, that all of us are fallen, all of us are broken, and all of us come askewed with sin. And it's evidenced by we know in our own hearts because God has written it on our hearts before he ever wrote it on stone what his moral responsibilities are for us. We know that it's wrong to take something from somebody that doesn't belong to us simply because we know it doesn't belong to us. We look over history and we see that that cultures have become murderous. Cultures have become Drunken with the power of trying to be the best human race that they could possibly be by extinguishing other human human beings and human races. And how did they do that? They did that by brainwashing the people of their culture, making them move away from believing that murder is wrong, that this type of condensation against the other human beings is wrong. They did this by telling them that they were better than anyone else. They had to lie to them. And restructure their thinking. Because mankind knows in their heart of hearts what is right and what is wrong. And we know that because Jesus wrote it in our hearts before one person was created. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. We talk about the communicable attributes of God. 
in theology. And what does that mean? It means that every person who's made in the image of God is made with certain communicable, God communicated certain attributes that He has to us. For instance, the attribute of knowing the difference between right and wrong, or the attribute of jealousy, or the attribute of of any of our human emotions. We understand that those come from the one who gave them to us as a reflection of who he is. Though his are perfect and ours are fallen, ours are still made in the image of who he is. So the idea of where I know what right is and where I, what I know what wrong is comes strictly from God communicating to me as being an image bearer of who God is that I do know His idea of right, His idea of wrong. Again, we know it from the garden because if we didn't know it from the garden, how could God ever punish Adam and Eve for eating from the fruit? If they didn't know what good and evil were at the time that they partook of the fruit, how could they be punished for what was evil? Except that they knew. And what they wanted was exhaustive knowledge of what good is and exhaustive knowledge of what evil is so that they might be like God and not just the reflectors of what God said is good and what God said is evil. And from that point, it's been in the heart of every human being it's been on the law of every human being. It's been on the heart of every human being, the law of God. And in it, we are disobedient because we still, apart from Christ and apart from God, still want God dead in our lives. In verse 17, then he goes on to say something. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God. What is Paul saying? If you're, if you're going to rely that you've got the written law, if you're going to rely on, on being a, a good Jew, then you must understand you minimize the glory and the judge himself, the giver of the law, if you think that you're able to keep the law in such a fashion that you could ever be justified by your keeping of the law. We read it this morning. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does that mean? Does that mean you should not worship your job more than you worship the Lord? Well, it doesn't take but a brief look at our calendars to find out where our worship goes. What are our lives consumed with? Houses, money, cars, clothing, education, tuition, bills, visas, MasterCards. For the advancement of what status? It doesn't take us long to look at our lives and to see those elements of our lives that say, I really truly in my heart of hearts express more love for these things than I do for building the kingdom of God. It's true in my own life. It's why these chapters are heavy to me. I have to reflect on my own life and I have to look at those places and say, God, this weighs heavy upon me. What am I to do? Your law demands something that I'm not able to give. Thou shalt not steal. How many times have I gossiped about a person or maybe you've gossiped about somebody and you've tried to steal their reputation? 
What does it mean to steal? It doesn't mean simply to put a piece of bubble gum in your pocket that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't mean to maybe embezzle some money or to cheat on your taxes. Or to speed without paying the fine. But it's something much more broad than that. It's something much more deeper than that. It means to take what is not mine. Someone else's reputation is not mine to take. Mine is not to take somebody standing before God and try to de-elevate their standing before God just because I don't like them. Thou shalt not murder. I've never killed anyone in my life. I get sick of killing a duck. But how many people have we murdered with our tongues? You remember what our master said in the fifth chapter, the sixth chapter of, of Matthew, right? That if you've called your, your fellow man a fool in your own heart, you're subject to the fires of hell. Because you murdered their reputation. You called someone made in the image of God a fool. And in doing so, we de-elevate saying, yes, I can meet the moral standard of God. I can stand before God because I have religion. I know the Ten Commandments. I can recite the Ten Commandments. I know them backwards. Some of us know them in Hebrew. And we also know them in Greek. But standing before the church and reciting the Ten Commandments in whatever language means absolutely nothing if they are not written on my heart perfectly. Not only externally, but also internally in all of my motivations before the Lord. That's the, such the interesting thing about Jesus. That Jesus, as He walked on the earth fully kept the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the Levitical law as well, and the civil law of Israel as well. He kept the entire law as well, not only externally, but also internally, in his heart and in his motivations. He did it perfect. He never did anything, including healing another person, that it wasn't for the glory of his Father, that it wasn't before his Father's heart to honor his Father. Everything Jesus did, He did out of love for the Father. Perfectly. Without one stray thought of His own self. Why? Because He knows the glory of the lawgiver. And we see it as Paul unveils it in Philippians, right? Right? He who took on the likeness of mankind did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. Rather, he found himself as a servant. And in his servanthood before the Lord, everything he did was to serve his Father with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his strength. Both internally and externally. And Paul is saying to the Jewish people here and to religious people here, don't think 
that your keeping of the law or even your own religious rituals will help you when it comes to comparing yourself to him. And in doing so, you think that you honor me, but you really dishonor him. And then he goes on to say, not only is there a fallacy of this non-universal condition that somehow the whole world isn't in this condition, but he talks about the fallacy of being religious even further when we get to verse 28. In verse 2, 28, he says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What, what Paul is setting up in these, these three chapters is this. That there is a gulf of separation between God and you. And me. And that gulf is so wide and so deep that we are absolutely hopeless. And without hope of covering that gulf within our own power. And that we think that somehow in our power we could ever do that, shows our hypocrisy. And it's evident to the world that we point more to our traditions, we point more to our religiosity, we point more to our efforts than we do to the One who saved us. We do that by having a passion for ourselves in community more than we do for the Savior and His community. It's subtle. It's insidious. But our churches across our country have become more about our churches and less about our Savior. And we must repent of that. Our churches are more a facility to make me feel good about my life and the way that I'm living and affirm me in my status than it is to convict me of my sin and lead me to the cross of Christ so I may do the work of Christ on this earth. And it is the fallacy of our religion and our hypocrisy if we do not do that that the world sees and says, we will revile your God because of your hypocrisy. Because your church, your religion, is much more about you than it is about the one who saved you. You see, it's the ultimate fallacy of being religious. Without Christ. It's the ultimate fallacy of holding on to traditions apart from Christ. It is the ultimate fallacy of holding on to self and self comfort apart from Christ.
And Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? What advantage is it to be religious? And he says something very interesting. Well, or what value is it to be circumcised? A lot. Much in every way. Why? And he answers this question. He anticipates these questions. He says, here's why. Because you are entrusted with the oracles of God. What a blessing it is, no matter what your status is right now, what a blessing it is that you are in this building underneath this roof with the Word of God open. You who are unbelievers right now, if there's one of you in this room, there may be two, possibly three, you are incredibly blessed at this moment by the grace of God to be in a house where His people are hearing His Word and the Bible open. It is a grace that much of this world will never know. You are amongst His people where the law has been read, where the gospel is being preached, where He is being sung of all of His glories, and most of the world will never hear that. But today, you get to hear it. For some of you who are raised in the church, you wonder, well, then what good was it for me to be raised in the church? What good was it for me to be baptized? Much in every way, because you have been exposed to the covenant promises and the covenant graces of God all your life. Most of the population on this earth never gets that. And Paul says that's an amazing gift. It's an amazing grace that you're even here to be exposed to the holiness of God. Because much of mankind has been pushed away by its own pushing. Paul answers these questions in this third chapter, anticipating what will be said. Any of us who've ever taught can, can understand this. I, I know there's been, there's been something said that I said that I never said. There's been some things attributed to me about certain things that aren't, just aren't true. Because I believe a certain way that God works in His sovereignty, somehow that doesn't mean I believe in personal holiness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because I believe that personal holiness is so important, I believe I can only accomplish it through the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Because I think the law of God is so holy, 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 and beautiful, and wondrous, and glorious, and what I want to pursue in my life is I realize I can't do that without Jesus. I don't find hope in religious Traditions. I find my hope in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what Paul is anticipating from his Jewish people. What about circumcision? What about baptism? What about being a Presbyterian? What about being a Methodist? What about being non-denominational? What about being four C's? None of those things matter. There's secondary issues to knowing Jesus. Then he anticipates another question. 
What if some were unfaithful? In other words, what, what if some of us have been living in church unfaithfully and it shows God to be faithful? Should we just continue to be on unfaithful? If we're going to really follow this grace thing, if we're really going to look to Christ alone, then that means we should just live however we want to live so that Christ will look bigger. And Paul says with an emphatic word in the Greek, no way. I was doing an editing process there. It's an emphatic way of saying no. It's silly. Paul says that's a silly question. How could you ever be indulged in the grace of God and have His grace lead you to licentiousness? How would the grace of God ever lead you to breaking the law? If you ever think that God's holiness and God's grace and God's mercy would lead you to repel yourself from all that is beautiful about God, you don't know grace. Because the grace of God is for one purpose and one purpose only. So that you might pursue the holiness of God through His law. You see, you're not justified by His law. I'm not justified by His law. But because I'm justified by His law, I'm able to seek His law. But if I seek His law to be justified, I miss the point. But because of my justification from Christ alone, His law is beautiful to me and no longer my master, but my beauty. So the universal condition of mankind is this. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Are we religious people better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, religious and non-religious, humankind, the moralists, are all under sin. That is, is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And then he goes on to continue to describe our condition And then in verse 19, he begins to sum it up. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's where we started three weeks ago. The purpose of these chapters is for us to shut our mouths about how great we are. And begin to open them about how great Christ is. Because that's what we will be held accountable to. It won't be how many lawns we mowed. It won't be about how much money we gave. It won't be whether we were fully dipped in the ocean. Or whether we were just sprinkled with a a thing of water. It won't be questions like that. That's not our judgment. Our accountability to God is, did you trust the Son of God for your life? Fully. Totally. And then verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. These are the purposes of the law. Our church fathers gave it to us early on. 
that we might know that the law's first use is this, that it's a mirror for us to look in. What is the purpose of God's law? It's a mirror for us to look in, for us to see God and all of His beauty and all of His glory and all of what is required in His law and then for us to understand, I can't do that. But to believe that Jesus did and to run to Him. Throw off everything you've got. Be unencumbered. Throw off all your sin, Paul would say, and cast yourself upon Christ. The one who did keep the law. And He did it for you. And He did it for me. The second use is to be a restrainer. That the law of God works this purpose in our life. That it restrains sin in the world. All of the laws of mankind are mostly established upon the laws of God in the Old Testament. Most of the civil laws we have, most of the congressional laws that we live under in this country, found their origin in Exodus chapter 20. They are a restrainer against evil in the world. And then the third use, it tells us how we're to live. It shows us a path that we're to walk. It shows us the place that we are to pursue. But it does show us one more thing. It shows us our inability to be justified by that which we can never keep perfectly. And so a preview of the weeks to come in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. What is Paul about to unveil? The good news for us today is this. That Jesus, the lawgiver, completely kept it. In every way, at every level. Some of you say, well, that's just too easy. If it's grace alone and faith alone, that's, we just kind of get off the hook and that's just too easy. Let me ask you a question. What is easy about being ridiculed and isolated? What, what's so easy about being persecuted and harassed? What, what is easy about carrying a, a wooden beam, maybe 150 to 175 pounds on your shoulders for three miles or so? while people spit on you and hit you and beat you after they've already beaten you near your own death and flogged you and ripped your flesh from your bones. Tell me what's easy about that. And then to hang you up in the air, naked, for all the world to see, for every friend you had to ever leave you, so that you would hang there alone and by yourself, or even your own mother doesn't cry out for you? What's easy about that? And then to experience the total darkness, the full sting of God's wrath upon His own shoulders. What was easy about that? To lay in the darkness of death and the total blackness of being isolated and forsaken by God the Father. Tell me what was easy about that. 
are to pay for every sin for every man and woman that has ever lived or ever will live. Tell me what was easy about that. Because that was done for you and for me. As though we did it. So that when He arose as our righteous judge, we arose with Him. It is the only, only, only hope for justification before God is the grace and the mercy of the One who walked the road, who walked the talk, and who hung on the cross and took the wrath of God for my behalf and for yours. And nothing else matters after that before the throne of God. Let's pray.